Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, though I'll refer to several other scriptures in this topical sermon, as we're going to consider a portion of the covenant of communicant membership this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. This is the Lord's word as he gave to the Apostle Paul who wrote to the saints at Thessalonica. And so this is God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. So let's give due reference to it as we hear it read. First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's uh, briefly pray. Lord, we do thank you for your written word, and pray now that as we consider what you have to say about particularly the authority and discipline of the church that we would hear and that we would apply these things well to our lives, that we might serve you faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for these preparatory sermons, the weeks before we're observing or we've been observing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I've been going over uh, the topics, the things which the uh, Reformed Presbyterian uh, Church commits ourselves in the covenant of communicant membership. And today we come to the last part of vow four in that covenant. The whole query asks, do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America? Do you recognize your responsibility to work with others in the church? And do you promise to support and encourage them in their service to the Lord? In case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? So today we come to that last portion of that query. In case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? Now, a while back in our series in 1 Corinthians, I preached on the necessity of church discipline. So I won't be uh, rehashing all that I said back then, uh, but I'm going to start today by uh, briefly pointing out that church discipline is a good thing. It's good when church discipline is conducted biblically. Uh, That will be our first point. Church discipline is a good thing. And secondly, I'll show from Scripture that the church has authority to discipline members. And then third, we'll briefly look at the biblical process of discipline. So first, church discipline is a good thing. That is to say, it's a biblical thing. As we read just now in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we are to recognize, that is honor, really the word means, uh, those who exercise authority in the church. Uh, Christ has given his authority in certain areas to the church. And congregations, which are the local expressions of the church, uh, choose their elders 
who exercise that authority. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So notice that elders rule there. Uh, that's not a, an expression of sort of a figure of speech where they're saying elders are awesome, you know, elders are great, elders rule, right? Or, or they exercise authority is what that means. Uh, some of them make their living uh, by laboring in the word and doctrine, but all of the elders have ruling authority in the church. Sometimes as the elders rule, as they exercise Christ's authority in the church, they have to carry out church discipline. And certainly, uh, we are fallible men, and so elders can make mistakes in how they discipline. And so, in fact, in, in our uh, church government, we have a whole process whereby you can appeal discipline that maybe was exercised, if you think it was exercised incorrectly. Uh, but when needed, when used correctly, church discipline is a good thing. We see in Proverbs 20, verse 25, as we read earlier this morning, it, it is a snare for a man to vow rashly something as holy and afterward to recon, reconsider his vows. So we, uh, we have made certain vows before the Lord as we join a church, and the elders have the task of helping us keep those. And so it's a good thing. It's good to take care with what we have committed ourselves to. And we must not vow rashly. And it's also good to keep our vows and commitments. The elders are tasked with helping us to do that, to keep our covenant of communicant membership. And so uh, we labor to do so as elders, and we should all then, uh, elders and the rest of us, uh, be willing to come under that guidance. When discipline is necessary, Proverbs 20, verse 30 reminds us, blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. Now, the church does not have the power of the sword. Christ has given that to the state. Uh, we apply that verse metaphorically as we're carrying out church discipline. We, we don't use corporal punishment, right, where blows that hurt cleanse away evil. Right? We're not literally hitting people, uh, but we discipline nonetheless. There is a figurative rod of discipline that the church uses. The RPCNA's Book of Discipline puts it like this, God's people are called to be holy. The sin of any member of the church has an adverse effect on the whole church. This includes communicant and baptized members, both of whom are subject to the discipline of the church. God has established an orderly manner for dealing with sin in his church. This order is set forth in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, involves loving personal confrontation, using witnesses, and calling upon church leaders for counsel and judgment. Five purposes of church discipline are primarily to reclaim a sinning member, then to deter others from similar offenses, to maintain the honor of Christ and the purity and peace of his church, to maintain the truth of the gospel, and to avoid the wrath of God coming upon the church. A church which, which does not follow our Lord's commands regarding church discipline will certainly lose his blessing, deteriorating more and more in doctrine and in life. Discipline should be exercised with prudence, discretion, humility, and in full dependence upon the guidance of the Spirit of God, with love for both the lawgiver and the lawbreaker. Not everything displeasing to an individual is ground for formal disciplinary process. 
Offenses which require discipline are three kinds. Heresy, disregard for, for or violation of the moral law, refusal to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the Constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, and contempt for the courts of the church. That would be refusal in case of need of correction or in doctrinal life to respect the authority and discipline of the church. So uh, heresy, disregard for the moral law, and uh, contempt for the courts of the church are the three, uh, three uh, main reasons that someone might be disciplined. As the Book of Discipline rightly states, church discipline has uh, the goal of regaining the sinning brother. That's really what it's about. It does have other secondary benefits, but its primary benefit would be to regain the sinning brother. If I am sinning in, in an ongoing way, I want, because I love the Lord, I want the church to help to correct me. In 2 Corinthians 2, 6-8, Paul writes, This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. In context there we see that Paul is talking about a man who has come under church discipline and is now uh, needing to be restored. In his sorrow he has repented, and so, so... Paul's telling him, well, now bring him back. Restore him. He's to be restored to full fellowship with the church. In Matthew 18, Jesus briefly outlines a a church discipline, and that, that brief outline has the goal, as Jesus says, of gaining your brother. But even if it does not gain the one who is sinning, at the very least, what it has done is purged out the leaven of that sin from the midst of the congregation. Because if somebody has not repented uh, of an ongoing sin, eventually they would be, as we'll get to later, uh, excommunicated from the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Paul says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. As the book of Discipline says, Discipline deters others, Uh, from similar offenses. If we uh, let someone uh, continue in an ongoing sin unrepentantly, that's just going to tell the rest of us, well, we can do that too. And it's not a problem. So church discipline then, of course, uh, deters others from similar offenses. It maintains the honor of Christ and the peace and purity of the church as well as the truth of the gospel because we're not letting it be undermined. And it avoids God's wrath in coming upon the church. As Jesus in uh, Revelation 2 and 3 writes to seven churches, he actually threatens the first of the church of Ephesus with removing their lampstand, which is a way of saying, I'll remove your authority if you don't repent of your sins. Particularly there, they were getting their doctrine right, and he commended them for that, but they were forgetting the love that they had at first. But in short, church discipline purges out the leaven that Paul's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 5. It gets the influence of a significant sin and its consequences away from the midst of the congregation. Church discipline is a good thing. Secondly, we also see that church, the church actually has the authority to do this. The church has the authority to discipline its members. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven... 
And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, uh, we should note a couple of things there. Uh, For one thing, uh, we don't have time to get into all of the details now, but, uh, but the best exegesis of that text shows that Peter alone does not wield that authority that Jesus is talking about there. But that as the one who on behalf of the apostles declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, Peter was representing the church which Jesus declared he was building. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, There is no reason to believe that that authority rested solely in Peter, nor that such authority would be passed on to any successors of Peter uh, in Rome. So we, we don't see this as grounds to believe that we all need to bend the knee to the Pope. But for another thing, it's important to note that the verb tense in the Greek is better rendered to read something like, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's not as if the church has the authority to determine what should be bound and loosed, and then God has to follow suit with us. That we, we make the decision and God will just acquiesce to it. No, the church has no authority to determine to do whatever it pleases uh, in terms of church discipline, but it has the authority to exercise discipline consistently with what God has already revealed his will to be. It's what we bind shall have been bound in heaven. What we lose shall have been loosed in heaven. But that authority to bind and loose, also known as the power of the keys, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, uh, refers to a couple of things. Uh, First, it refers to the authority to determine who is or who is not actually in the kingdom. Again, that's not to say that the church chooses who is saved and who is not, and then God has to save them. No, uh, that's God's prerogative. But rather, the church has the authority to use the tools God has given us to recognize who looks like they're actually in the kingdom and who doesn't. And so, based on the fruits that people are bearing, and then admit uh, those who are bearing fruit of believing the gospel as communicant members of the church. Also, the power of the keys includes the authority to determine if a straying brother has sufficiently repented or not. In John 20, verse 23, Jesus tells the apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Again, this is not to take God's prerogative away from him, but only God, of course, can can forgive all sins, and the church cannot force his hand. But rather, uh, this is the authority to determine who is and who is not bearing fruit of, depend, or of repentance? Who looks like they're actually repentant and who doesn't? Sometimes we can make mistakes with that. But Jesus has given us tools to use to figure those things out. This is authority that the church has to admonish, to rebuke a sinner, to suspend or excommunicate the unrepentant, and to restore the one who does repent. You forgive or retain sin. The church has authority to, to discipline its members. Thirdly, then, let's talk about uh, the biblical process of discipline. Jesus lays out a short outline of the process in Matthew 18, 15 through 18. 
He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's a direct uh, connection of those words from chapter 16 now to church discipline. And again, the Greek is really, will have been bound in heaven, or will have been loosed in heaven. But notice that the process begins with brother to brother, as it were. It progresses to having uh, two or three witnesses, as God required in Deuteronomy 19.15, a no charge can be established unless there are at least two or three witnesses to something. And then finally, if the brother has not repented after all of this, after these efforts to get the brother to repent, uh, the matter is brought to the church. And that doesn't mean uh, by gossip that we just come and gather with the saints and say, hey, you know what so-and-so did, uh, or by standing up during announcement time right before before worship service and say and accusing somebody, but by bringing the matter to the elders who exercise Christ's authority. That we see that as as the authority of elders is fleshed out in the New Testament. Notice also that the goal, as we noted before, was to gain your brother. Jesus says, if at any time in this process the sinning brother is convicted and repents, he is to be restored. You've gained your brother, right? If he Fails to repent, though, after many opportunities, he is to be treated, Jesus says, as a heathen and a tax collector. And how were first century Jews taught to treat heathens and tax collectors? They had some contact with them. It didn't mean they had no contact. There wasn't complete shunning, right? Uh, they, they might have necessary business dealings with them, but they had no spiritual or religious fellowship with them. That was the difference. Now, as we dig more into the New Testament, we find that the process is fleshed out a bit more, particularly once it's brought to the church. The first steps Jesus lays out in Matthew 18 apply to how individuals participate in this process of church discipline so that it never even needs to get, Lord willing, to the attention of the church. You bring the sin up with the sinning brother. If he repents, you've gained your brother. Matter's closed. If he does not repent... You take one or two more with you, so that there will be two or three witnesses. Uh, this can be a check also on the rashness of individuals as well. Maybe I think you've sinned in a significant way, and I raise the matter with you, but you don't think that you've sinned. Well, I bring one or two brothers or sisters with me, and they, they might say after examining things, well, no, Daniel, you're, you're wrong. No sin has been committed here or it's already been dealt with or something, whatever. Uh, or they'll agree with me. And then we can call you to repent together. And if you repent, the matter is closed. But if you don't repent, then it becomes a matter for the elders, the church, to deal with uh, in church court. Again, this isn't as if one single elder has authority to deal with these things. It, it's to be the church court, as it were, the session or the presbytery or the synod. Once the, the matter has been brought to the elders and they determine, well, indeed, a sin 
has been committed here. It's one that's serious enough that we ought not just to pass over it. As we noted before, that as the uh, RP Book of Discipline says, we don't we don't consider that every sin is a matter for church discipline. <clears throat> but we see this is something that's worthy of church discipline. Well, then the elders will act. Now, we maintain that again that not every sin needs to be a matter for formal discipline. We need to have patience with one another. Each one of us stumbles in sin, and we can be righteously aggrieved. We can be rightly offended by something that somebody else in the church has done. But most of the time we just need to let our love cover that sin. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. But when someone continues unrepentantly in a lifestyle or a pattern of sin, or if the sin undermines the gospel witness or the unity of the church, the elders should go forward uh, with a process of discipline. Now, the church has dip- typically discerned uh, five forms or degrees of church discipline that the New Testament speaks of that elders can exercise. The lightest form is what we call admonition. This is the same word that sometimes uh, translate where we see and we talked about this morning in Sabbath school in Ephesians 6 that we're to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So in the admonition is more the correction side of how you raise your children. Telling them, don't go that way, go this way. Right? First Timothy, or First Thessalonians, rather, 5.12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Admonition is usually thought of as a very light or gentle corrective word. An encouragement in the right direction. Formal admonition is usually used if someone is failing in a duty that they've promised to uphold. You know, the elders might formally admonish someone to get back to public worship when they've been neglecting it uh, without a good excuse. It's not not as if somebody's in a nursing home and you're going to admonish them. You need to come back to worship when you can't. They can't get out, right? Uh, but we. If somebody has been failing to observe the sacraments after neglecting them for a time, we want to get to the bottom of that. But slightly heavier than admonition is the form of discipline known as rebuke. So 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Rebuke is, is whereas admonition might be telling somebody you need to be doing this, a rebuke is more, stop doing that. Right? Stop doing that negative thing. It's typically used when uh, someone is engaging in more of an active sin. We might admonish someone for failure to come to church. Uh, we would rebuke a person for actively doing what we ought not to do. Again, it's, it's not to be overused. We don't pounce any time brother or sister stumbles in sin. We could all be rebuked constantly. I mean, I wonder how many times a day I would need to be rebuked right? if, if we use this uh, for every sin. Uh, we don't need to do that. The elders would grow weary trying to discipline every sin, <clears throat> just the ones we know about even, right? It's uh, easy enough to, to see enough sins if we start examining each other very closely. And that would just frustrate 
each one of us with this consistent hammering of overused discipline. No, we, we need to be patient with one another and encourage one another in our walks with Christ. But when someone is continuing unrepentantly in a sin, the elders might rebuke that sin. They might rebuke the sinner and call him to repent. Or if he has refused to hear the counsel of the admonition before, we're, we're admonishing you to do this thing that you're doing. Now you have refused the counsel, so we're rebuking your refusal to hear the counsel. And both the admonition and the rebuke are usually what have been called one and done forms of discipline. You just say, we rebuke you, that's it. right? And of course, if the, if the person doesn't repent, then maybe other discipline will be needed. But once the admonition or the rebuke has been issued, it's finished. It's not something that is an ongoing discipline that you're necessarily under, so to speak. The erring brother has the responsibility to repent, but his fellowship with the church is not affected at that point. It's not removed. It remains. If he does not repent, more extensive discipline might be needed, which can affect the sinner's degree of fellowship with the church, but the rebuke itself doesn't. So if a sin that that has been rebuked continues, or for more egregious sins, which are undermining the gospel clearly, uh, breaking up the unity of the church, uh, public and open sins, uh, the session or other broader court of the church, a presbytery or synod, might move to do some heavier forms of discipline. A member might be suspended. Uh, that, that is, he may be excluded for a time from certain privileges of membership. Usually we're thinking of the Lord's table when we talk about suspensions. We're saying, well, while you're committing this sin, until we see you've repented, you shouldn't come to the Lord's table. Uh, Paul speaks of such discipline in 1 Corinthians 5.11, though, though he's more broadly talking about excommunication here, but, but we do see the, the uh, suspension being a part of this, where he says, Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Well, that implies, of course, then we can't have the Lord's Supper with such a person. For church officers, a significant sin might be seen as disqualifying that person from office in the church. So in 1 Timothy 3, for example, the qualifications for elders and deacons are set forth Uh, What if a man ordained an elder demonstrates that he does not have one of those qualifications any longer? Or that we were mistaken in thinking he had the qualification in the first place? Uh, What if his behavior shows he is quarrelsome? That he's not a one-man woman? Well, he needs to be removed from office. Uh, That's called being deposed. Deposition is the, the, the name for that form of discipline. But the most weighty degree of church discipline is excommunication. It's in many ways the saddest unless, again, again, the goal, though, is to gain your brother. And so we can rejoice if it has to be used and it gains the brother back. Treating a person is outside the fellowship of the church. As Jesus said, treating them like a heathen or a tax collector. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Titus 3.10. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. 
our book of discipline states it like this about excommunication. This is the disciplinary exclusion of a member from the visible church. It should be imposed only for such malignant errors or persistent violations of God's law as are grossly inconsistent with the Christian profession of faith or subversive to the doctrine and order of Christ's church. All possible efforts should be first made to bring the sinner to repentance. Before excommunication is pronounced, a valid attempt should be made by the court to inform the offender of the pending action. Excommunication shall be pronounced by the moderator in constituted court in the name of Jesus Christ. Prayer shall be offered to God for mercy and repentance. The court shall make the people under its oversight aware publicly of the fact of and reason for the excommunication. Members should then relate to the person as one who is outside the visible church and in need of repentance and salvation. So again, it's not a total shunning. You never talk to the person again, but you treat them as if they're not really a believer. And that's a very sad and difficult thing when the church has to do that. It's rare when it has to do that. But uh, when it does, it uh, can become a very effective means of getting that person to recognize, oh, I really was wrong. I've, I've been cut off from the fellowship of God's people this way, and so I need to repent. That's why Paul says that we uh, do this in 1 Corinthians 5, so that, so that they will repent. Church discipline is a good thing. So do you cherish it as a good thing? It helps, well, helps reclaim us when we're sinning. It helps keep the church pure and our doctrine and conduct righteous. Christ has given the church the authority to carry out discipline. So we need all of us to submit to that authority for it honors Christ. Such discipline may be lighter or heavier. Uh, It might be that, that an admonition or a rebuke is sufficient to reclaim a brother. Or at other times, the heavier degrees of discipline might be needed, though that's rarer. Uh, whether uh, suspension may be needed uh, to bring somebody uh, to repentance, to convince them to repent before uh, coming to the Lord's table, or, or uh, whether we might need to actually uh, treat somebody with, uh, with more serious removal, as it were, and remove that influence from the midst of, of the church, but purging the leaven, whether it's deposition from office so that somebody's not preaching in our churches, teaching the wrong thing, or excommunication. But church discipline is for Christ's glory as well as for our good. Well, let's pray briefly here. Lord, we thank you for the power of the keys that you have given the church and thereby the authority and discipline that you have given as means of reclaiming straying brethren and of maintaining the peace and purity of the church, as well as laboring for its progress. Grant that we might use it wisely and submit to it meekly, to the glory of Christ. And prepare us all now, we pray, in heart, that we might remember our vows and keep them, and come to your table next week with a clean conscience. In Jesus' name, amen.